You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. So the seventh, the eighth day of Hanukkah, I should say, right? Last day of Hanukkah, final Hanukkah in Hebrew today is called Zeus Hanukkah. This is all Hanukkah because we got the entire menorah ignited. It is also a special day that finally we come to all the candles that were lit, all the entire menorahs kindled completely, getting rid of all the different darkness that's in the world and through this we are able to continue shining throughout the year as there's some sayings that used to go is Hanukkah nimshach kolash Hanukkah goes on throughout the year even though maybe we don't light the menorah every year but uh, throughout the year but the shine the brightness the message of Hanukkah continues throughout the year talking about the message of Hanukkah and especially the concept of continuing igniting and bringing light and positivity into the world there's a very interesting story about a fellow a Holocaust survivor by the name of Rabbi Yankiv Zilberstein. He was, a, uh, he was in charge of the synagogue in a place in Israel called Rishon Letzion. And he was one of the only people that survived the camps that he was in, in the concentration camp that he survived in in September of 1939 after the Nazis came into Poland, swept them off the street, put them in a truck, and took him to Buchenwald. And from there, he was there three years, and after that, he was moved over to Auschwitz, and that's what actually saved his life, that he was able to move into Auschwitz, and that, because many of the people from there were able to survive. His whole family was destroyed. He was the only one that survived. No brothers, no sisters, no family, no parents, nothing. Not even any cousins. A single solitary Jew coming up to the land of Israel, and he is today, has a very large family himself. This Rabbi Yankif tells a story about once he meets Shimon Peres, the former president, prime minister of Israel, who was about the same age. And he sees Yankel going with a yarmulke on his head. And he asks, Yankel, how do you still believe? We lived through all the same type of stuff after everything you went through. How do you still believe? Yankel looks at him and says, Shimon, I'm the only one that survived for my family. I shouldn't have been here. That's why I believe. Shimon Peres looks at him in his very cold, callous, secular way of thinking and says, ah, in Hebrew it tells him, you're a mamzer, which means you're adopted. You don't belong. How could you? And this debate of Jewish survival is something which you have two people can experience the same type of event one person walks away stronger in his belief and one person wants to throw it all away. How is that? Two people come across the same exact episode, survive the Holocaust. One person says, where was God during the Holocaust? And therefore he says, that's it. I don't want to have anything to do with this God. And the other person says, no, God was there to save me and therefore I'm going to be because strengthen my commitment. How do the two people have that same different type of commitment? Or where does the concept where does the idea of Jewish continuity come on? The fact that we are here today, Jewish resilience, after thousands of years of persecutions, we are the most persecuted nation in the universe. There hasn't been a nation under the sun that has gone through as many persecutions as the Jews, and the Jewish people are still here today to tell the tale, while all those countries and all those nations and all those people that tried to persecute us don't exist today. What gives us that resilience? What gives us that power? What gives us that strength? This question is stronger today more than ever, especially as the Jewish family 
used to be in the shtetl, everybody lived within the same little enclave, you lived in the same five miles, you couldn't get too far, there was nobody to talk to, you had to hang out with your family, everybody knew who they were. And today, un- today, fortunately, unfortunately, whatever it is, within three steps, a person can leave and go wherever they want, how they want, and seemingly disassociate and have no connection whatsoever with the places they came from. You can go to the other side of the universe and never talk to your family again and completely become a total independent individual, so to speak. What gives the Jew, regardless of who they are, the want, the desire, the ability to continue on the Jewish continuity, the Jewish strength, the Jewish courage, and that belief in God? What is the secret to our success? What is the secret to the very fact that Judaism is here to stay regardless of what happens? And we're going to look at this through analyzing two of the great dominant figures in today's Torah reading. And today's Torah reading we talk about two individuals, Yehuda and Yosef. And they both approach one another. And we will see that Yehuda and Yosef are actually two paradigms of two individuals who symbolize two different methods and two different mythologies of how one can serve God. And another thing we're going to see is, while seemingly Yosef is the first one to reach the level of kingdom in the Jewish nation, who is the one for eternity to be the king was given to Yehuda. And for eternity Yehuda is the one that King Mashiach is going to be from Yehuda. And he is the one that's going to be, so to speak, the symbolism of kingship within the Jewish people. King David came from Yehuda. While Yehuda himself, as we're going to see, had a little bit of a challenging past, and we're going to analyze it. And looking into why Yehuda is this reason of he is the one to be victorious for the future generations, and he is who the kingship belongs to for the future generations, and not Joseph, will give us a better understanding and an appreciation for what the Jewish people are all about. So let's just have a quick synopsis and a recap where we're up to in this week's Torah reading as we get into the approach between Yehuda and Yosef. In this week's Torah reading, we begin, it's a, so to speak, a sequel of last week, where Yosef accuses his brothers of being spies. His brothers come down to Egypt to get bread, food, because there's a hunger extended not only in Egypt, but extended to the land of Israel. Egypt, with the geniusness of Yosef, was able to supply and have all the food that they stored up for many, many years, and therefore now they were the superpower of the world that everybody was coming to them to ask for food. The brothers amongst the rest of the people were coming to ask for food. Their father didn't want that they should look like any uh, bad eye should affect them, so therefore he told them to all use different gates. Yosef knew eventually that his brothers were coming because since the hunger was spreading all over, and therefore Yosef tells the scars to look out for his brothers, and they walked into different gates, so therefore accused them of being spies. They couldn't recognize Yosef. When they sold Yosef, he was only a boy of 17 years old. He was now already 22 years later. He was 34 years old. He had a nice long beard. They didn't know who he was, and they never even imagined in their wildest dreams that their brother would be the viceroy of Egypt. However, Yosef seems then, he sees them, and he tries to get them to bring them to the level of absolute repentance, and therefore takes away Shimon and tells them to bring Binyamin. And we're up to the Torah, part of the Torah reading where the brothers are sent back home, but then they find the magical gab- goblet in, Yosef, in Binyamin's backpack where Yosef says, because we caught him as the thief, he's going to have to be a slave here, you guys can return. This week's Torah reading begins, Yehuda tells Yosef, Ki you're just like Pharaoh. And the word that the Torah begins is, Vayigash, and he approaches Yosef. 
He is ready for war. He is ready to do whatever it means to be able to get back his brother. And over here, if we look in the last probably five sections of the Torah, starting from two weeks ago, we find something very interesting. Yehuda is mentioned many times. And about the third of the Torah reading, in the bo- third of the book of Genesis, tells us about Yehuda. But not always in a great light. In fact, many mistakes that Yehuda did. Let's start off, number one. He was the one that decided to sell Yosef. True, he was saving him from being killed, but at the end of the day, he sold him, told him to be sold, and now the brother and his father couldn't be consoled and comforted because of it. After he was told to sell Joseph, he then met a woman, Tamar, who was his daughter-in-law, thought she was a harlot and almost accused her of, of a promiscuity, and therefore she would have been killed. The last few moments, they were able to identify who she was and who the culprit was, which was himself. He recognizes his mistake and he says, yes, I made a mistake and because of that, everything turns over. So we see over here quite clearly Yehuda is a person who doesn't always have, if we want to call it, right judgment. In contrast, we talk about a fellow by the name of Yosef. Yosef was a person, wherever he came, he was successful. Ba'asher hu as the verse tells us, whatever he would do, God made him successful. No matter what the circumstance was, he was successful. And to the extent that he was the first Jewish person to make it to be as a king. This week's Torah reading begins with that portion where Yosef is the king, Yehuda the challenged one, now approach each other. They're standing in front of each other and they're saying, Yehuda saying, please, I promised my father I will bring this child home. Please allow me to take this child home. Take us all as slaves, but let this child go home. His soul is connected with his soul. I can't just leave him here. The Tehillim tells us, and the Medrash, the commentator on the Tehillim on the Psalm says, this approach of Yehuda and Yosef was not a one-time approach. This was a symbolism of their connection and their approach for future generations. That these two, Yehuda and Yosef, are a symbolism that they are connected one into the other. That when one rules, the other is subservient. But the moment the other goes down, the other one comes up. As we see in the prophecy of Ezekiel at the end of this week's Torah reading in the, in the Haftorah, in the prophecy of Ezekiel, he talks about a time where God tells him he should take a piece of wood and he splits it in half, and one he says it's going to be for the tribe of Yehuda, one is going to be for the other ten tribes, and he tells them, however, will come to a time, the Avdi David Malachalei, my servant David, will be the king on them. The David Avdi Nesialeim, and the servant David is going to be the king. What God was telling Ezekiel in the prophecy, there's going to come a time, a split in the Jewish people. There's going to be the ten tribes who are going to be led by none other, by somebody from the descendant of Yosef, from the tribe of Ephraim, by the name of Yeruvim, as we'll soon get to in a moment. And then there's going to be two and a half tribes who are going to be led by somebody by the tribe of Yehuda. Rechavim, a son of Shlomo, of King Solomon. But that split is only going to be for a certain amount of time. Who is going to be the eternal king? Who will be the king forever? Is King David's descendants. And therefore, Mashiach will come, it will be from King David's descendants. Where is it going to stay? Where is the kingship going to remain? By King David, who is from the tribe of Yehuda. Another thing we find as well, when we talk about another step and so to speak crowning Yehuda for the eternal king of the Jewish people, is in the next week's Torah reading. 
Jacob is on his deathbed, calls all his children, and he wants to give him a blessing before his passing. And therefore he calls over Yeruvah and Shema Levi and finally gets to Yehuda and he tells him, Yehuda, la yasr shevet me, Yehuda will not leave the stick, meaning the staff, the rulership will not leave from Yehuda, and they will continue to be amongst them's feet at until the time of the coming of Mashiach. The Talmud tells us that this verse that Jacob was telling Yehuda is that regardless of where Jewish people will be and even during the times of exile, that our leaders will be from the tribe of Yehuda until the time of the coming of Mashiach, which then Mashiach will be also from the tribe of Yehuda. Who are these people? And the Talmud says, throughout the Jewish people's time in exile, they were led by people from the tribe of Yehuda. Now let's understand this a moment. We have over here Yosef. Yosef who himself was standing by Jacob's bed by passing. What was Joseph at the time? He wasn't just your ordinary guy. Joseph was the viceroy of Egypt who brought Jacob and his family down to Egypt. And what is Jacob saying? You're not going to be the king. Your descendants are not going to be the king. You're only temporary. You're a king here in Egypt. But that's about to fade away. Who's going to be the true king? Who's going to be the future king? It's going to be Yehuda. And Joseph has to listen to this. Joseph has to hear this. While he hears that he is king currently, he knows that he is not going to be future. Yabar Benel, one of the commentators from the Spanish origin, tells us as follows. And he says, if you look at these blessings, what were they all about? Were they blessings? If they were blessings, why didn't the first three sons get blessings? As we look inside, it looks more like rebuke than blessings. And if it wasn't blessings, it was rebuke, then why don't only the first three sons get rebuke and not the other sons get rebuke? What was Jacob telling his sons before he passed? Was he giving them blessings? Yes, we call them the blessings of Jacob. But if you look at them and you analyze them, they really don't look like blessings. Shimon Alevi scolds them for killing the people of Shechem. Reuven, he yells at him for what he did for moving this. Uh, for he says you were too quick and therefore you lost the right to the firstborn. Others, he compares them. He does give them blessings that they compare to different animals and what's going to happen to future generations. But what really was Yaakov telling his children? And the Abarbanel says a fascinating thing. He tells us that the entire reason why Yaakov, Jacob, was blessing his children or what we call the blessings, he was actually crowning Yehuda to be the king. All of the words of Jacob were an explanation of why Yehuda was going to be king. So he tells Reuven, you were too quick, and therefore I can't make you king. You don't have that capability. Shimon Alevi, you have that zealousness in you. You don't have that ability to be able to look things properly, and therefore you're not going to be able to be king. Finally, he comes to Yehuda. You're the third one, the fourth one, and you're going to be the one that's going to be the king for the Jewish people, and the kingship is going to stay with you. If we look throughout the generations, and we can see that throughout the generations, the Jewish people are constantly confronted with a Yosef and then with a Yehuda. Let's take, for example, the first war the Jewish people waged as a nation was Moses waging war against Amalek. Who were the generals that were going out of war? Was a fellow by the name of Yoshua, who was the servant of Moshe, his successor, and also Hur, who was the son of Caliph. Yoshua came from the tribe of Ephraim, Yosef's descendants. Hor came from Caliph, the tribe of Yehuda, Yehuda's descendants. First wars waged with a representative from Yehuda and a representative from Yosef. Let's go a little further. 
The first time the Jewish people are about to go into the land of Israel and spies go to check out the land of Israel, there are two spies that come back clean that have nothing to do with the sin of the other ten. What tribes are they from? Ephraim, Joshua, which is from Joseph, and Caliph, which was from the tribe of Yehuda. Again, we see these two are always juxtaposed, one with another. They're always next to each other. Yoshua himself is from the tribe of Ephraim, and as we said, Caliph is from the, um, from the tribe of Yehuda. Years pass. Who is the first king to be nominated amongst the Jewish people? King Saul. King Saul, who came from Binyamin, was from the same mother of Rachel. They were from the same lineage as Yosef, if you want to call it. The closest to Yosef you're going to get. He was the first king of the Jewish people. Did his kingdom last? No, he was the only one. Who was the king that was after him? King David, who came from the tribe of Yehuda. Who was going to be the king to pre eternity? Was Yehuda. While Saul was the first, he wasn't the king that lasted. It was the one from King David that lasted. Let's go a little bit further, as we mentioned before. After King, De after King Solomon's passing, the kingship split, like in the prophecy of Hezekiel. There was one leader and one leader. Rechavam, who was the son of Solomon, was the leader from the tribe of Yehuda. Who was the leader for the other ten tribes? An evil man by the name of Yeravam Benevat. He came from the tribe of Menashe, the tribe, and he as well came, I'm sorry, from the tribe of Ephraim, the son of Joseph, Again, you had the two kings for the Jewish people. The first time there was a split, one was from Yosef, one was from Yehuda. Let's go even a little further. The tabernacle, when it stood in the Holy Temple, when it stood in Israel, was in the territory of Shiloh, which was in the territory of Yosef. Later on, where was the Holy Temple built? In Jerusalem, which was in the territory of Yehuda and Binyamin. In the time of the coming of Mashiach, we are told that there is going to be one Mashiach who is going to have to wage war and wage the wars of Gog and Magog. And that Mashiach, just want to get the door. And that Mashiach is going to fall to fall a war to the to the army of Gog and Magog. But eventually, after that Mashiach falls in war, after that Mashiach doesn't make it, then there's going to be a second Mashiach, a Mashiach, the son of David. Who will that be the eternal Mashiach and bring the Jewish people to the ultimate redemption? What do we see again over here? The two situations, the two scenarios where you have the kingship of Joseph coming first while the kingship of David coming next. And again, from Joseph and Yehuda, these two are always and constantly juxtaposed with one another where one comes first and the other, so to speak, follows. There's a fascinating story which is brought historic story which is told about the eternity of the tribe of Yehuda and the kingship of David. After the Romans conquered and destroyed the Holy Temple, there were many terrible decrees on the Jewish people living in the land of Israel and they were forcibly char uh, ch charged to leave the land of Israel. And of course when Jewish people are expelled from their holy land they always have to look for a place of safe haven. At that time, those who opened their doors, and there were already a few Jews living there from the time of the exile of the first temple, because already still from the story of Purim, in the land of the Persians and Babylonia, there was already another person living there. And the Jewish people found refuge under the Persian government in the land of Babylonia, where there they were able to 
have the freedom of religion, practice and study, and over there Judaism thrived, where that's where we know the whole Mishnah and the Talmud came about. Many great sages moved over to Bavel, to Babylonia, and they had the cities of Pompadisa, Sura, Narda. The great Torah story is Torah halls were there for over 400 years. At times, there was a person who had leaned the Jewish people in exile, and he was called Reish Galusa, the leader of exile. The story tells us, takes us back into history, that in the middle of the 700s, there was a king, a Persian king, who was then at the superpower of the world, was very angry, and he heard about this lineage of the king of David. And he knew that every single leader of the Jewish people, including Hillel and so on, and their students, were the leaders of the Jewish people. And he decided that because he feels threatened by the lineage of the king of David, he is going to wipe out every last remainder, remnant of the king of David, of the kingship of David, the family of David. And he went out and he made it his mission to kill every single family member, men, woman, and child, of who may be related to the kingship of David. One day, not only that, he also took all the great rabbis and arrested them and put them in prison. One day the king has this terrible dream. He has a dream. He's in his beautiful garden. An orchard. You can imagine kings of those days. That's what they would show off with was the garden. And in his garden, all of a sudden, he sees a guy chopping down every single beautiful tree that you can imagine. Bush, flower, was all becoming destroyed. And as he was... Uh, I'm sorry, the king himself was walking in his garden and he was cutting down all the different trees that were there. Cutting down all these beautiful trees. And he's about to destroy the last seedling that was there. The last little tree that was there. He's about to hold up that axe, whip it and knock it out of the place. All of a sudden a red, tall looking guy comes, grabs the axe, the axe out of his hand and is about to kill him. He says, what did I do wrong? Why do you want to kill me? He said, you went and killed my, you destroyed my whole garden. I'm going to kill you. So he says, please, please. Don't kill me. Don't kill me. Save me. He says, you know what? I won't kill you on one condition. You see that little seedling that you didn't kill? That last one? You got to protect it with the apple of your eye. You got to make sure that that thing grows, prospers, and nobody touches it. He says, for sure. No problem. And that's the end of his dream. He wakes up in the morning. And the king is completely confused. He doesn't know what he had, what he dreamt, what was it all about but he couldn't find any rest. He called all his interpreters, all those people, they couldn't explain to him. They told him, the only one that can explain to you this dream is the famous rabbis that are sitting in the prison. So he says, okay, take them out of the prison. Similar to the story of Yosef, right? Mm -hmm. Takes them out of the prison and he brings them there and they start telling him, that he tells them the dream. And they tell him it's a very simple and obvious dream. You went and you decided your job, you wanted to meet out every single remnant of the kingship of David. That is what that orchard is. You chopping out and trying to kill every single remnant of the house of David. And over here, King David came along, because King David was redhead, came and stopped you from killing the last one. So he says, what? There's still one last remnant of kingship of David that's around? How do you know? And the rabbi says, I know because my daughter was married to a descendant of King David. She is pregnant, and she went into hiding when you wanted to kill out. 
all the people of King David. And I'm not going to tell you where she is unless you promise me like you promised the red man in the, in the forest that you will not harm them and you will protect them. The king made the promise and the wife of Chaninoi, she came along and she gave birth and this child grew up in the Persian king's palace. He was then given the name Bustanai. You know, there's a very famous novel they made on it. It's called Bustanai. And this boy Bustanai, which means garden, because he was saved because of the garden, he then became the Reish Galusa, the leader of the exile. The Medrash even tells us about an interesting thing when he grew up, when he was like a teenager already. In his older years, he came in front of the king of uh, Persia and he was standing in front of the king and he stood straight face, stern face, didn't make a move. And this king wanted to see if he was going to move or anything of that nature. And he didn't even move. Even a fly, a bug came, a gnat came and started buzzing around him and gave him a, a sting. And he started bleeding and he still wouldn't move. So the king looked at him and said, why don't you do anything about it? A, a bug came and touched you. He said, ever since the kingship of David was king, taken away from, the king, from David, we know that whenever we're in a king's palace, there is no laughter, there is no talking, we stand stern-faced. The question still is, why is it that Yehuda was the one, as we see, even to such great a sense, that Yehuda was the one that his kingship should never be extinguished. His kingship would never be uh, forgotten. His kingship is the one for eternity. While Yosef, who was the first one, who is always side by side with Yehuda, Yosef is by the sidelines, but Yehuda is the one that's they'll be able to make it. Not only that, the question even becomes stronger in the parsha that we're going to be reading next week, that Yaakov himself, who loved Yosef, who made Yosef, so to speak, the king of essentially in Egypt, but then takes it away from Yosef and says, Yosef, you're not going to be the king anymore. You're just the starting. You're just a promo. You're just the, what do they call it, the guy that the first show that makes the opening act. But after that, it's all Yehuda's game. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? Even more so, if we start remembering and looking at Yehuda, and looking at what Yehuda did, Yehuda seemingly was a person who wasn't as successful as Yosef. He made the mistakes. Take into consideration, look at the difference between Yehuda and Yosef. Yehuda was a person who made all those mistakes. What was his mistakes? First of all, with his brothers that he sold Yosef, as we mentioned before, the fact that he, he, gave, he made a mistake with Tamar. In contrast to Yosef, Yosef stood up against the wife of Potiphar's seduction. He stood up and did not capitulate to be able to give in to the ways of the land of Egypt. So why is it? And over here we find that the Medrash asked the question, what is the merit? What was Yehuda so lucky about that because of that, he was given the kingship and not Yosef? So before we go to that answer, let's digress a little bit and talk about something completely differently. Which is there is something that we find generally in Jewish law that there are certain words that we don't utter, we don't say. We're not talking about foul language, God forbid. But certain things which are so disgusting and so beyond the pale of something which is nice that we don't even want to mention its name. And which that is, for example, a pig. In the Talmud, you'll, never, you'll find the word, won't say chazir, which is a pig, will say davar acher, the other thing. In fact, in according to Jewish law, you're not allowed to have a pig as a pet. 
You're not allowed to even bring up pigs. You know, what do they call them? To cultivate pigs and bring them up. Even in the land of Israel, until there was a law that you're not allowed to have pigs there. Even today, when people who unfortunately sell pig, pork in Israel, they don't call it pork. What do they call it? Basar lavan. White meat. Because they don't even want to call it pig. Maybe, I don't know, they want to convince people or maybe it's just uh, if it's ordered. But the bottom line is, pork is officially illegal in many places in, in Israel. They say a story. There was once a, a rabbi and a priest about to walk into this country club and there was a sign that said, no Jews and pigs allowed. So the priest looks over to the rabbi and says, I guess you can't go in, I'll have to go myself. So the rabbi turns to the priest, didn't you see what it says? It says, no Jews and pigs, that means we both can't go in. <laughs> <laughs> but the Orachayim tells us something very interesting. He says, if you look at the word, chazir, which in Hebrew means a pig, also comes from the word chozer, to return. And he says, the very fact that today pork is prohibited is because chazir eventually it will return and it will become permissible. Osid ha-chazir lihitoyer, the chazir, the actual pork, the pig itself will eventually become something that is kosher. The Orachayim gets this and he, learn, he learns this. This is Rabbi Chaim ben Atar. He learns this from the verse in Leviticus. When the verse in Leviticus discusses about the, learn, the detail of the uh, non-kosher animals, so the Torah tells us which animals are kosher, what are the signs of a kosher animal, and that's the chew its guts and have split hooves. And the Torah then enumerates, if it has split hooves and doesn't have to choose its guts, it's still not kosher. If it chews its guts but it doesn't have split hooves, it's also not kosher. In order to be a kosher animal, you have to have both kosher signs, and it mentions different animals which only chew its guts but don't have split hooves. And then it says, and, but the, and the pig who has split hooves but doesn't chew its cuts, that is not kosher. Why does the Torah have to repeat itself and also point out that the pig is different? The Archaim wants to say, he says, yes, the pig now is not kosher because it doesn't chew its cuts. But when Mashiach comes, then it will be kosher. Now, what does this mean? So there are many different interpretations in this, in this verse and these verses. Some want to say that this is not true. Some want to say that it can't be, that when the Torah is going to be for eternity, and therefore it can't be that the laws of Torah are going to, going to change. And therefore, and the Orachim, however, says, but because the, because the Torah states clearly, now it doesn't chew its cuts, maybe is it going to change? Does it mean that animals are going to change? And there's a whole interesting debate about this whole concept. In fact, there's a fellow by the name of Commentary on the Medrash, is named the Yafei Torah by Rabbi Shmuel Yafin. He says that this medrash is just a, was written not as a reality, but it was more written as a joke, or as more as a sarcasm type of thing, if you think that even the pig is going to become kosher. Others want to say that the reason why the Talmud uses it as a terminology, something else, to say that it also won't be returned. But the bottom line is we find in many, many commentaries that do say and do hold of this opinion that it will eventually return. And the question is very obvious. Why out of all animals do we take the animal that is the dirtiest, that's the most disgusting, the one that's lying in the mud, that animal, that's the one that's going to return. What happened to everything else? There's so many other beautiful animals. There's a nice donkey, there's a nice horse. So I can think of beautiful animals that we use for nice, holy, good purposes. Why aren't those going to become kosher? Why the pig, the one that's the most dirty of everything, that's the one that's going to be kosher. And the answer is, very simple and this which will answer these two concepts the reason the concept of what's behind you the secret behind 
Yehuda's eternity and the same idea as why the pig is going to be able to be returning also have a similar and a common idea. Many times people make mistakes. What's the difference when we make a mistake? Is how we react to the mistake that we made. The difference between Yehuda and Yosef is as follows. And we spoke about this previously as well, but it's good to talk about it. Yosef, by definition, by his very virtue of who he was, he was a successful person. The Torah calls him, he's one of the only people in the Torah that are called Ishmatzliach, a successful individual. The Torah calls him Yefei Toyar, he was a beautiful looking individual. And it doesn't only mean his outside complex, but his inner, com- his inner complexion, his spiritual makeup. He was a tzaddik. He was a righteous individual. He did nothing wrong. His father loved him. He was able to study with his father all the time. Yosef was a person, regardless of what happened to him, he was always stood in his holiness. He did not bend or buckle for the things that were around him. He didn't, was not enticed by his evil inclination. He was not enticed by the seduction of Potiphar's wife. He was able to stand up and strong. He was an absolute righteous individual. Yosef HaTzadik is the only person in the Torah that's called HaTzadik, the righteous. He was absolutely righteous, no faults to him. Yehuda, on the other hand, was a simple person. A simple person who was a shepherd. A shepherd in Shechem. He was an individual who made decisions and made mistakes. He sold Yosef. He made a mistake with Tamar. He made a mistake with all the different things that happened to him. But what's the difference between Yehuda and Yosef? He made a mistake but was able to learn from his mistake to stand up and to become taller because of it. While Yosef never had that experience of even making a mistake because he was always righteous. The moment Yehuda made a mistake, he recognized it and he stood up and he said, Yes, I made a mistake. When it came to Tamar and she was about to be killed because of him, Yehuda said, it is my fault. Stop. I'm the guilty one. When it came to selling his brother Yosef and over here he had to protect Binyamin, he said, I'm the one that got him sold. Let me be the one to protect him. While on the other hand, Yosef was a person who never had that opportunity, never saw, never recognized, never realized, never saw anything which was wrong. Well, now we can understand the difference between Yehuda and Yosef. Historically, Yosef always had to be first. The kingship had to be first Yosef than Yehuda. Whether it was by Saul and David, it was by Yosef and now, but Yosef was, Yehuda was given the blessings. Or whether it came later on by the king of the ship of David, by, the, by Moshiach, when Yosef and the Moshiach, when David. Because before you do something, you have to have the actual plan of what it should be ideally. You need to know that the ideal situation has to be. Yosef represents the ideal situation. In fact, King Shaul, if you look at who he was, he was this great person. In fact, it says there was nobody like King Shaul that he had no sins at age 20. He was an unbelievable great character. Same as Yeruvim ben Evat. He also started off as a great character that God even offered him to have a walk in the Garden of Eden, so to speak. They were great, great people. The idealism started off with Yosef. But idealism is not practical. Idealism doesn't always translate into common practice. And therefore, when something has to be done practically, that's Yehuda. Where we make mistakes, 
but we learn from our mistakes. And we learn not to do them again. And that's what lasts for eternity. I can be the most idealistic individual, but if I'm not boots on the ground, if I'm not actually doing it, what does it make a difference? In idealism, everything works. In theology, everything works out. But go work it out practically. That's where you make the mistakes. That's what's eternal. Making a mistake is not a problem. It's a learning curve which gives you the ability that this keeps you on track for future times. And that's why Yehuda was the one for eternity while Yosef was only temporarily. That's one explanation. Now we're going to take it deeper from the Hasidic perspective. There was a great guy, he's still around. God just wish him a refuah, speedy recovery. His name was Professor Yermio Braniver. Professor Yermio Braniver was an individual who won awards... Uh, in Israel and, and internationally in hydromagnetic, I think it's called, or something of that type of um, big science. And a few years, and he was an individual who lived, was brought up in Riga, Latvia. He was not allowed to go to school and study with everybody else because he was Jewish. And therefore, he saw himself as a person where he was able to fight anti-Semitism at the greatest oh. point. And he was able to connect himself to Judaism even in a place of communism where no, nobody else believed. And he connected with the Chabad movement and the undergra- Chabad underground in Russia. And he was, uh, started becoming more observant in, in commandments and mitzvahs and so on. Eventually he was able to get out of Russia because of his ac- academic uh, knowledge and his world-renowned scientific uh, abilities. And he was brought all over the world to lecture in his, uh, in his field that he was a great scientist about. One time, he was giving this lecture by a conference of scientists, an international conference, and he realized that he didn't put on tefillin yet that day. And he's looking, it was the winter, and the sun is starting to come down. And it's starting to get a little late. And he's standing while he's giving the lecture, he's thinking to himself, what am I going to do? I didn't put on tefillin today yet. But at the same time, I'm in the middle of giving this lecture to this international scientist where I'm going to become renowned in my field. I'm the big scientist. How can I stop? And he's having this debate going back and forth in his mind. What am I going to do? Until finally he just says, some excuse. He says, I have to have a family emergency. Stopped the lecture mid-sentence. Got off the stage. Took a taxi to his hotel. Put on tefillin as the sun was coming down. What all of a sudden got into the scientist's mind? A person who has never, who hasn't been brought up in a Jewish observant home. Only later in a life did he discover Judaism. A person who is saying, what? Okay, he'll miss one Tzvillin. What's the big deal? Put on Tzvillin again tomorrow. The science uh, uh, lecture is not going to happen again tomorrow. Where was, what was the Jewish pride in him that gave him the oomph, the ability, the impetus to say, that's it, drop it, I'm going to put on Tzvillin. What this is telling us is that in every synagogue there are two types of Jews. There are two Jews that come into a synagogue. There's a Jew that we call Yosef and there's a Jew that we call Yehuda. There's a Jew that we call Yosef, for example, the Seder comes. He's going to study every single book out there about the Seder. He's going to come to the Seder well-educated, well-understood, knowing every single avenue, every single quote on the Seder. And then you have a Yehuda guy 
walks in, he says, I don't know all these different books. I know I got to show up to Seder. I know I got to eat matzah. I know I got to have four cups of wine. You have a Jew that shows up to synagogue. He knows every single book in the library shelf about all Jewish theologies and its debates and everything else. And then you have a guy who just says, I know you got to come to shul on Shabbos. That's all I know. There's two types of ways that we can serve God. But what's the difference? One Jew is experiencing himself. And because he enjoys God and he enjoys Judaism, therefore, he's going to enjoy it. And therefore, he comes to shul and therefore he'll enjoy the Seder. Because he learned and he educated himself and he knows it and therefore he likes it. But then there's a Jew that enjoys God. He's not here for himself. He got no clue what's going on in the page of the prayer book. The only to go to shul, so he's here. God said, I observe Shabbos, I'm here. Do I know what's going on? Sometimes more, sometimes less. That Jew is Yehuda. Who is going to survive in Judaism? What kind of Judaism is going to be for eternity? Is it one that's going to be by the intellect or one by the practical? By the ideological or is it by the practical? The Talmud had this debate. The Talmud said, what's the most important? What's more important? To study or to do? To practice or to learn? What was the Talmud's answer? Not that clear. The Talmud said, well, study is great because it gets you to do. If I don't study, I don't know what to do. But what's the point of study? That I got to do. So we see over here very clearly, the whole reason why a person's studying is because he's gonna, he has to do. Which tells us even deeper. The Chabad Rebbe has explained to us. That your whole reason of studying is not because I intellectually enjoy this concept. It's because this is what God told me to do. And the only way I can do it is because I study about it. That means it's because of my connection to God that I do it. Let's now look at a person. Let's go back to the Yosef and Yehuda paradigm. Every single one of Yosef and Yehuda. We look at their people. Look at Yosef's descendants. King Shoal. He was too big to fail. He was a person who said, I am too big to fail. So the moment he got hit in war, he said, take me out. I'm done. I'm too big to fail. People look at me a failure. Not only that, what was King Shoal's mistake? Why did he lose the kingdom? Because he was brilliant. He said, what does God need my sacrifices for? No, I'm sorry. What does God want me to kill all of Amalek? Let me bring them as sacrifices. He used his own intellect and changing what God told him because he used his intellect instead of committing himself to God. Coming from the word Yosef, which means to add. It's not only what God told me. I'm also going to be part of it. I also want to get my own intellect, my own idealism, my own infrastructure in it. And that's where the mistake came from. That's where brought them the independence, so to speak. Brought them into the understanding and saying, I'm going to follow my rationale, and that's why I'm going to do it. Yeruvim Benavat was the same thing as well. Yeruvim Benavat, who was the first king after they split, he was worried about Jewish people going to the Holy Temple and not serving him as a king, and he might lose his allegiance and his tax base, so therefore he created these golden calves and brought the Jewish people to idolatry and brought them to the level that today he is one of the only people that are mentioned in the Talmud that don't have a portion in the world to come. He was a great scholar at first. But because he went after his rationale, 
He didn't do it because of a godly connection. He lost it. In contrast to Yehuda. Who came from Yehuda? King David. David was the first one to say, Chatasi, I made a mistake. He was the first one to acknowledge, I'm not the best. I've done some mistakes. I messed up. But now we got to go further. We got to work on it. We got to make it better. And because of that, it's with Yehuda who continues. It has the eternity. The same ideas also we look when it comes to the Jewish people. You can have a person who studies all the Torah and he knows every single facet of the Torah, but he's only doing it because of his intellectual rationale. It makes sense. He loves it. He enjoys it. The moment all of a sudden it's not where they enjoy, it's not for me. What does that tell you? He might find some other places that don't enjoy and therefore will start dumping everything. But if I'm doing it because every time I study a word of Torah, I'm creating a relationship with God. It's not because of my rational, it's not because of my day idealism. It comes from the word Yehuda. Yehuda means hodeh, lehodot, to acknowledge, to realize, to be subservient. Yehuda was named hapam, oidel Hashem. Leah said, now I can acknowledge, I recognize the connection. A person that wakes up in the morning and says, I thank God for returning my soul. We begin our day because we recognize it's not about me. I'm only an extension of God. I'm only here because God wants me to be here. And therefore, this is my job of what do I have to do. As long as I do it, okay, I understand more, I understand less. That's a different story. But I'm boots on the ground. I'm practical. I got to do it. Yehuda says, I make mistakes, but I move on. I'm action. Action is what stays forever. I can have all the greatest wisdom and I do all the greatest thoughts in the world, but it's not going to get you anywhere. What do they say? The way to hell is paved with great intentions. It's all good intentions. It's all great idealism. But idealism is not eternal. Idealism is only in one of somebody's rationale. If it's not going to translate in practical boots on the ground, if you're not going to be walking, if you're not going to be doing, what does it mean? You did nothing. I can learn everything, every single book, but if I didn't eat the matzah, I haven't observed Passover. I can know every single intention, whatever it may be, but if I didn't do the mitzvah, I didn't do it. It's the fact. It's the action that matters. This brings us back. We mentioned before about the chazer, about the pig. Why is it the pig out of all animals that are going to become kosher? What a sign of the pig, of all animals in the universe, does the pig have and does not have? The pig, its feet, its split hooves. It doesn't chew its cuds, but it has split hooves. The Rebbe explained something fascinating. The pig... It has its feet on the ground. It's doing what it has to. Ah, it's dirty. And it's in the schmutz and everything else. Yeah, that's why now in exile, there's so much schmutz, he's not kosher. But when Mashiach comes, all the schmutz, all the dirt is going to be getting rid of. Everything is going to be refined. Everything is going to be revealed. So then also then, he will chew his cuts. And that's why the Torah uses the terminology. His cuts he does not chew. Now he doesn't chew it. Now he doesn't chew it because we live in a very dark, dingy world which is still not yet refined and Mashiach isn't here yet. But when Mashiach comes and the world will be refined and the pig is going to come out of its schmutz, then it's going to chew its cuds. Then it will also be able to be a kosher animal. This is everything that this bottom line is to us. That What's the lesson that we learn from it? 
There are many things in this world we don't understand. And when a child asks questions, what do we tell the child? Do it because you're told. They'll learn afterwards the reasons. We need to know when we wake up in the morning, we follow what God tells us, not because I understand it. Not because I appreciate it, because that's what God told me. I want to have a relationship with God. And if I want to have a relationship with God, I got to do what he asks me. I may think, you know, like the guy says, I want to bring my wife beautiful flowers. I'll pay thousands of dollars to the flowers. But what if his wife's allergic to flowers? He's not doing anything. You can have the greatest intentions, but if God's allergic to it, you're not creating a relationship. The relationship that we have is when God tells us what to do and we follow what God tells us to do. Whether we understand it or not. That's why, what are we called today? As Jewish people, what are we called in Hebrew? Yehudim. We're named after Yehuda. Because we have that level of acknowledgement, subservience, recognition. They're realizing that this is the continuity of Jewish people. When we do it, because this is what we're told to do. The Jewish people in Russia, the Jewish people in Auschwitz, the Jewish people in every persecution, they weren't the greatest geniuses of Jewish people. They weren't the greatest scholars, the ones that had that self-sacrifice. They were the simple people that were willing to give everything in their life just for Judaism, just for God. Because it's a relationship. It's not an intellectual exercise. Yosef is the idealism, is the righteous. That's not who everybody is. Even more so. When it comes to being a king, and this is the final point, who can be a king? If you're a person who's aloof and you can't relate to the people, you can't be a king because you don't understand what they want. Like the lady that used to say, let them eat cake. She couldn't relate to the people. They didn't realize people were starving. Yehuda, he relates to the common person. He knows what it means to fail. He knows what it means to challenge. And therefore, he can be the king of the Jewish people. Eternity means that we fail. Yes, we do make mistakes. But as long as we know we make a mistake, and we learn from our mistakes, and we get up, and we become stronger because of it. That's the resilience of the Jewish people. That's what gives us the opportunity to be able to go further. That's what brings Moshiach, the David Avdi Moshiach, who's from the house of David, because David made mistakes, we all make mistakes, but it's not about our mistakes. It's about what we do after our mistakes. It's about how we become better because of it. We're not asking you to be righteous. We're asking you to be Yehuda. Yehuda who learned from her mistakes. But the bottom line is, how do we do it? Is we got to do action. And when we do action, every single mitzvah will ultimately bring about the coming of Moshiach.